Greetings to all our brethren around the world. On this first day, the Days of Unleavened Bread, we hope you had an inspiring Passover and an enjoyable night to be much observed. The acronym is NTBMO. You can find that in Exodus 12, verse 42, in the King James Version, the night to be much observed. If you have your Bible, turn to Numbers 33 and verse 3. I say, if you have your Bible... That's a television term, and I'm sure that all of you do have your Bibles. Numbers 33 and verse 3. And they departed from Ramses in the first month, on the fifteenth day of the first month, on the morrow after the Passover. The Passover was on the fourteenth. The children of Israel went out with a high hand in the sight of all the Egyptians. They were going to begin a new life. They were free. They were now on their exodus toward the promised land. This was the 15th day of the first month. They left from Ramses, as I may have told you before, when we taped the telecast on Lessons of the Exodus in 1991, we were actually at that location, the archaeological dig, and the site is called Teladaba, right there in what is now called Ramses. So that was the first 15th day of the first month. Today, we remember that the Israelites began their exodus they began their journey to the promised land. We also are on our journey to the promised land, the kingdom of God. And during the days of unleavened bread, we need to commit ourselves to journey with Jesus Christ and to walk with Him. We have obstacles on our way to the kingdom, but we must be determined to overcome them. Turn to uh, Numbers, the 13th chapter, Numbers 13. Remember when Moses sent the spies into the promised land, they wanted to find out what the land of milk and honey was going to be like, and Moses sent twelve spies into the land, one from each of the tribes of Israel. And they returned from searching the land after forty days. This is Numbers 13 and verse 25. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh, and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land where you sent us, and surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. They were very impressed with the beauty of the land that God was going to give them. Nevertheless, verse 28, Numbers 13, Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea, by the coast of Jordan. There were armies, there were obstacles there. But notice what Caleb said, and if you... Have this, you should have this marked in your Bible, verse 30 of Numbers 13. And Caleb stilled the people. They were very excited. They were upset, that is, the spies, complaining that here were these giants there. Here were these uh, Anak, the children of Anak. Verse 30, And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Brethren, do you have that kind of an attitude? Do I have that kind of an attitude? We see the walls, we see the giants, we see the obstacles in our path. And yet here was an amazing attitude. Caleb said, 
we are well able to overcome it. And that is the title of the sermon, brethren. It is, We Are Well Able to Overcome. Now, obviously, Caleb knew that he couldn't do it on his own. They realized, he realized, and we need to realize that we have power behind us to help us to overcome. Verse 31, But the men that went up with him said, But we, not, we be not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we. He said, We're not able to do that. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. They're just swallowing us up. We won't have a chance. And I suppose we can say the same thing in our world today. The world will just swallow us up unless we have commitments, unless we have spiritual strength, spiritual character. And we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come out of the giants, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. And all the congregation lifted their voice, chapter 14, verse 1, and cried. And the people wept that night. And they murmured against Moses and against Aaron. What was the problem? They did not have their eyes on Christ, on the one who was, became Christ, the Eternal, the Lord of the Old Testament. As it says in 1 Corinthians 10.1, that rock that followed them was Christ. They got their eyes off their leader. They got their eyes off God. And so they were frightened. And yet here was a man who had courage. So how are we going to be able to overcome? How by... Christ guiding us and leading us just as He did with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day as you read through the book of Exodus and particularly the last few verses of the chapter, last chapter of Exodus. God has given us a plan of salvation and He's revealed that plan through the annual holy days. And as we observe them, we have greater understanding. We understand that the days of unleavened bread teach us a profound lesson in our journey to the promised land. Let's turn to Psalm 111 and verse 10. Psalm 111 and verse 10, a scripture with which you're very familiar. The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Eternal, the Ever-Living One, is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do His commandments. His praise endures forever. So we need the reverence and the awe of God. But understanding comes by practicing God's instructions. We have a good understanding when we do that. When we obey God, we learn more. We have a deeper understanding of His plan of salvation and our purpose and our meaning in life. Let's look at Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, that gives us instructions for the days of unleavened bread and all of the festivals. Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, and starting with verse 1. Leviticus 23 and verse 1. And the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, This is the one who became Jesus Christ. Speak unto the children of Israel, say unto them, Concerning the feast of the Eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. A holy convocation is a meeting, it's a gathering. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest. A holy convocation. Yes, we need to attend meetings on God's holy day, on His weekly Sabbath. 
And some of our brethren are not making that kind of effort. Yes, there are those who are scattered. We understand. But I hope, brethren, that others of you who can, who have the resources, to make that effort to be there every Sabbath if possible. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the eternal in your dwellings. Verse 4, Leviticus 23. These are the feasts of the eternal, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month at even is the eternal's Passover. And on the fifteenth day, which we're observing today, the same month is the feast of the unleavened bread unto the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. And so throughout this seven days, starting with today, with this fifteenth this day of the first month, we eat unleavened bread. And we'll find out the meaning of that and the symbolism of the days of unleavened bread. I uh, was talking with my wife, and you know, you go out to a restaurant during the days of unleavened bread, and you begin to question everything. Uh, you know, even on our own uh, uh, pantry, you know, do uh, bran flakes have leaven in them? Uh, we have to avoid pancakes. Uh, what about chicken noodle soup? Do the noodles, uh, are the noodles leavened? So we begin to ask the question and examine ourselves, at least examine whether the products that we're eating uh, have leaven. And in the same way, we need to examine our lives for the spiritual leaven that we might find. The New Testament church obeyed God's commandments. The 15th day was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 7, Leviticus 23. In the first day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall do no servile work therein. But you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the eternal seven days. That was a ritual under the Levitical priesthood. and We're under the Melchizedek priesthood, under the priesthood of Christ now. In the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. So we're observing those commands. And as we observe those commands, we have a greater understanding of what God's purpose is for us and for all humanity. God's purpose is to do what? As we'll see later, we have a part in cooperating with God as He creates in us His perfect, righteous, godly character so that we can be ready for the return of Christ and be born into His kingdom at that time. The days of unleavened bread reveal that there is a leaven, and it is a leaven symbolic in this case of sin. And we need to get rid of that sin. It's a part of our human nature. It's amazing that sometimes uh, we take for granted that uh, we're just normal people and we don't really realize what or how evil or how sick or ill, as it says in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, or as one translation says, without cure. And that's our human nature. And as we observe the days of unleavened bread, one of the symbols of leaven is human nature. And we need to be able to see it in ourselves. Is there anyone watching this sermon video or hearing it uh, on an audio CD? Is there any one of you who has not yet seen or understood or experienced his own human nature? Have you been able to see any selfishness, any greed, any ego, any vanity in you? Well, these days of unleavened bread help us to focus 
on one of the areas that needs overcoming, that needs conquering, that needs replacing with God's divine nature. Well, the days of unleavened bread, God gave those instructions to us, and the New Testament church obeyed God. We consider ourselves, of course, to be the spiritual descendants of the New Testament church at Jerusalem. Did the New Testament church observe the days of unleavened bread? Let's just take a quick look at Acts 12 and verse 3. Acts 12 and verse 3. There are several references to the days of unleavened bread. Now about that time, uh, this is verse 1, Acts 12. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. If this were not being observed, then Luke, the author of the book of Acts, would not have referred to it as a milestone in the history of the New Testament church. Verse 4, And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to the four quaternions of soldiers to keep him intending after Passover. The King James has Easter, which is a wrong translation. Intending after Passover to bring him forth to the people. Let's turn also now to Acts 20 and verse 6. Yes, the New Testament church kept the days of unleavened bread. And as our statement of beliefs and even the former association once said, we as God's church observe the festivals and holy days following the example of Jesus Christ and the apostles. And we do that to this day as well, even though some groups have apostatized and have given up following Christ's example and the example of the apostles. Acts 20 and verse 6. And, after, and we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, writes Luke, and came unto them to Troas in five days where we abode seven days. Well, you say, well, those are just references, historical. Maybe the New Testament church didn't observe it. Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. 1 Corinthians 5. And uh, here, Paul was writing not to a Jewish congregation, but he was writing to a Gentile church, the Corinth church. He says, to the saints that be in Corinth. 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. And you know the story of the one who had committed fornication. And uh, he said, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 5, You are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that you have done this deed that uh, he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. We don't want to puff up during the days of unleavened bread. But they were puffed up in their tolerance. They were applying a wrong concept of tolerance. They were enlightened. Well, we can tolerate all kinds of perversion. Well, no, we can't. And we should not. And this was one of the most corrective letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. And he went on to write, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, When you are gathered together and my Spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, God's work has discipline. God's church has discipline. And it was for His good. It eventually... It turned out that this uh, fornicator repented and was accepted back in the church, as you read in 2 Corinthians, the uh, 7th chapter. 
but glory or glorying is not good. Verse 6, Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. How were they unleavened? No, uh, some commentators and others try to reason around the fact that they were keeping the unleavened bread by saying they were unleavened spiritually. No, they were not unleavened spiritually. That's the whole problem. They were leavened spiritually. But they were unleavened, he says, as you are unleavened. How were they unleavened? They were unleavened physically. They were observing the days of unleavened bread. But here they had this great spiritual leaven that the Apostle Paul had to correct. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Here's a command, a New Testament command, to keep the holy days to a, a command to a Gentile church to keep the holy days. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here is a profound lesson for the days of unleavened bread. The symbolism of leaven in this case, of course, in one case, Jesus gave a parable of leaven as a symbol of the kingdom of God. So we have to take things in context. That's a principle of understanding the Bible. Here, leaven is a symbol of malice and wickedness. In other words, human nature. And we're to replace that, how? With the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said to his Father in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. In James 1, in verse 17 and 18, he says, He has begotten us by the word of truth. So God wants us to change from human nature to His nature of sincerity and truth, His nature of love, His divine nature. And that's all through the New Testament, as we'll see a little later. So here we find in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, a profound lesson that we must overcome human nature. Human nature is a leaven which must be replaced by the unleavened divine nature that is godly character. Now, these days of unleavened bread picture the miracle of conversion and spiritual growth. They also demonstrate, as the Passover did, God's love to us, that we're reconciled to God. Let's turn to Romans, the sixth chapter, just to review this process. We've observed the Passover. We realize that we are cleansed by the blood of Christ, as it says in 1 John 1 and verse 7. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Romans, the sixth chapter, again gives us the vision that once we've been reconciled to God, what do we do now? Romans 6 and verse 4. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When we were baptized, that is, after repentance... We had faith in Christ's sacrifice. We accepted His shed blood to pay for our sins. We were now free from the death penalty. And being buried in the water symbolizes the death of the old man. And coming up out of the water, the beginning of a new life. 
And this is a principle, brethren, that we can apply frequently. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So after the reconciliation through the Passover, now we are walking in a new life. And we must be committed and dedicated to walking in that new life. The days of unleavened bread teach us that we must overcome human nature, Satan, and the world. The days of unleavened bread, as I pointed out in sermons before, show us our part in God's plan of salvation. Our part is to actively cooperate with God as He creates in us His loving, divine nature. We have to cooperate. He is the great creator of the masterpiece of righteous, godly, holy character. I didn't plan to turn to that, but you know it's one of my favorite among many favorite scriptures and understanding why we have trials, why we have tests. 1 Peter 4, verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. So God is creating in us His character. And we go through trials and tests, even as Peter was writing here in verse 12 of 1 Peter 4. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. And so we understand that going through trials and tests helps to create in us a, a core of godly character. And so our part is to cooperate with God as He creates in us His perfect righteous character. And as we march forward to the kingdom of God to, on our daily exodus towards the promised land, our part is to overcome with Christ in us and with the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We have to overcome, as you know, self, Satan, and society, to overcome our human nature, to overcome the devil, to overcome the ways of the world. And at this season of the year, we need, brethren, to commit ourselves to overcome. Some people have a, a wishy-washy attitude or wishy-washy character. It's not strong. It's weak. We need to be decisive and committed. Are you committed to overcome? Remember what Caleb said. We are well able to overcome. And we'll see throughout the sermon today the need to overcome and as well as the techniques and strategies for overcoming. So in addition to the Passover commitments we've made, we must be committed to be overcomers. And you know the instructions. Let's turn to Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, the message to the seven churches. And I hope you understand, brethren, that those messages are historic, but they are also contemporary. That we understand that they show the growth or the history of the church over the various eras. But he says, remember, at the end of each one, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. And so we must examine ourselves with respect to all of these characteristics of Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. And so he says, at the end of each of these messages, verse 7, for example, Revelation 2, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches, to him that overcomes, 
will I grant to eat of the tree of life that is in the midst of the paradise of God. And then, of course, to the Philadelphians, Revelation 3 and verse 12. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Well, let's understand, brethren, one major key to these messages in Revelation 2 and 3. Maybe you think of yourself as a Philadelphian. Does that give you automatic right into the kingdom of God? Even those who are Philadelphians are not all automatically saved. What is the requirement? He that overcomes will I grant to be a pillar in the temple of my God. So all of us are required to overcome. And that's one of the major lessons of the Days of Unleavened Bread and emphasized here seven times in each of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Now, we need to take a look at the enemy that we have to overcome. Let's take a look first at 1 John 2 and verse 13. 1 John 2 and verse 13. What are we supposed to overcome? Well, 1 John 2 verse 15 tells us, Love not the cosmos, that is, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. There are many things in the world. And uh, the materialism that we find in our supermarkets and department stores and discount uh, centers are just incredible. Love not the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We need the love of the Father in us. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so we have to overcome the world. We also have to overcome Satan. And you turn over the page here. Well, actually, the same chapter. Sorry, back up a few verses. Verse 13, 1 John 2, verse 13. I write unto you fathers, because you have known Him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men, or as one of the uh, translations has, you young people. I write unto you young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Have you overcome the wicked one? I've told you the story before, how I was attacked by Satan, had all these blasphemous thoughts coming, just rushing into my mind, and I knew it was from Satan. Now, how do you get over that? kind of attack? How do you conquer? How do you counter that kind of attack on your mind and on your brain and your thoughts? Well, Mr. Armstrong used to give the example of getting air out of a bottle. How do you get air out of a bottle? Well, you put water or milk in. And to get wrong thoughts out of your brain and your mind, you put right thoughts in them. And I had to pray and I memorized Scripture. I memorized Philippians 4, verse 8. Whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. And I would replace those wrong thoughts with Scripture. I would quote those Scriptures in my mind and brain. And of course, as it says in James 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I resisted the devil and he fled from me and he will flee from you. 
We must overcome the world, the influences of the world, the materialism that's in it, all of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and we have to overcome the devil. The Apostle John continues, I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. 1 John 2, verse 14. I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known Him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, yes, you young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, uh, young men sometimes are, take pride in their muscles and their strength, but here young men can be thankful that God has given them spiritual power, spiritual strength. You are strong because the Word of God abides in you. And I hope you young men and women, as well as, of course, of all ages, that we are imbibing, of, we're drinking in, we're, in, we're instilling in our lives, in our mind, in our thoughts, the Word of God. I remember one quotable quote uh, by Mr. Rep. Meredith many, many years ago. It was uh, written up in the portfolio, the big Sandy Ambassador College newspaper. And that quote from Mr. Meredith was, Saturate your mind with the Word of God. I remembered it all these years. Saturate your mind with the Word of God. Yes, you young men are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, what about our human nature? Let's turn to Romans, the seventh chapter. Here the uh, commentators have a little difficulty with this because they think, now wait a minute, if the Apostle Paul was saved, quote-unquote, how could he be going through this kind of a struggle with his human nature? He says in verse 14 of Romans 7, "For For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do I allow not. For what I would, that do I not." But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells with me. So the Apostle Paul is going through this struggle. What was he struggling with? His human nature. Now human nature is a combination of of good and evil. But, of course, the evil part is what is damaging. For I know that in me, verse 18, that is in my flesh dwells no good thing, for to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now was the Apostle Paul, at this point in his life, he was an apostle, he was struggling. The commentators try to say, well, this was before Paul was converted. No, because he goes on to give in context the whole matter of his, uh, how the law is holy and just and, and how the Holy Spirit chapter coming up in chapter 8, uh, how we need to be filled with God's Spirit. But notice verse 21 of Romans 7, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Did the Apostle Paul do away with the law of God? Verse 22, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. He delighted in God's law. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. 
Well, these days of unleavened bread picture freedom from sin. Sin is always attacking us. It's always tempting us. It's always present in our human nature. And therefore, we have to be alert to it. But God has freed us from the penalty of sin through the shed blood of Christ. And we're on an exodus. And we're looking towards the victories that God gives us. And He gives us victories frequently. I pray for victories daily. And we'll see uh, some of the Scriptures, and particularly at the end of the program, that show us that. But the Apostle Paul talks about himself. Have you ever said this or felt this way? Maybe you expressed it differently. But have you ever said, as the Apostle Paul in verse 24, O wretched man that I am! Why did he say that? Who shall deliver me from the body of of this death? Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He'd already discussed the struggle with his human nature. But what is the solution? He gives us the solution in verse 25 and then on through chapter 8. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that with the mind I myself serve the law of God. Did he say the law was done away? No, he served the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. And then he goes on to chapter 8, talking about God's Holy Spirit. Now we also saw, and this is another point, but let's understand that we must overcome human nature. And we do that daily. Remember the song we used to sing, Overcoming Daily with the Spirit's Sword, uh, Standing on the Promises of God. So God gives us promises. And that's one of the strategies, of course, we use to overcome. Let's just take a look at uh, some of the other areas of 11 that affect us. Uh, Turn to 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, I think uh, some people may use uh, unleavened uh, flour and yet puff it up. I I don't know if we're learning uh, the meaning of the days of unleavened bread by doing that. But notice uh, what leaven does here in 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter. Now, as touching things offered unto idols, we know that all, we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. Again, uh, that's one of the things that uh, people who are trusting in their knowledge and their intellect and not using it as a humble tool in service of God, they're puffed up, they're vain, they have knowledge. Well, we have to be careful. God wants us to have knowledge, true knowledge. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1 and verse 7. Now, let's take a look at another example of the symbolism of leaven in Matthew, the 16th chapter. Matthew, the 16th chapter. It's a little warm here in the studio, but maybe this warm tea will help cool me up. turn to Matthew, the 16th chapter. Jesus excoriated and corrected and uh, really attacked the uh, Pharisees from time to time. But He's telling His disciples here in Matthew 16 and starting in verse 6. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Matthew 16, 8, Which when Jesus perceived, He said unto them, O you of little faith, 
Why reason you among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the, of the five thousand, and how many baskets you took up? Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I spoke not to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And there are many false doctrines that have a mixture of truth and error and seem to be appealing to those who have little uh, hang-ups in their own life. Beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There is a doctrine we were attacked at one time uh, called legalism. And of course, legalism was applied to anyone who kept the Ten Commandments. Well, that's not legalism. One of the definitions of legalism is that of your own human effort trying to keep all the aspects of the law on your own. But it takes more than human effort. It takes God's Spirit within us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And if Christ kept the commandments, then He in us can keep the commandments even to this day. We have to be careful that we're trying to do something on our own effort apart from the knowledge and the truth of God. We need to internalize, of course, the, the commandments of God through God's Spirit. Let's turn to Luke 12. And here's another one. Uh, Luke 12, another example of leaven. Luke, the 12th chapter. And uh, we have to be careful in our own lives to be pure in heart. Uh, remember when uh, Jesus talked about Nathaniel, said, here's a young man without guile. I mean, uh, he, he's, he's sincere. He's got a, a pureness of heart, in other words. Uh, we don't want to be hypocritical. Luke, the 12th chapter, verse 1. In the meantime, when there were gathered together a numerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he began to say unto his disciples, first of all, Beware you of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That is, you have an outward face, but an inward guile, an inward deceit. There's duplicity. But we need to have that sincerity. That's a whole new subject, of course. The whole matter of keeping the commandments that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We need to be able to speak accurately, truthfully, discreetly, yes. We don't tell all the information that is, is private. You don't disclose someone else's sins. You cover them. And you go to that person and try to help him. You don't want to be hypocritical. Beware you of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So we see here all the enemies that we must face, that we have to overcome, and some of the aspects of human nature that we must overcome. Is it possible to change? Is it possible to change from this human nature to God's divine nature? I think you've seen maybe friends and, of course, some of our beloved ministers and brethren who have died even in tragic circumstances. We know that they were filled with God's Spirit, that they were radiating the fruits of God's Spirit, that they were indeed saints of God. Let's turn to a couple examples. Uh, one is 1 Timothy, the first chapter, 1 Timothy 1. Is it possible 
for us to change from our human nature to divine nature. Well, that is the lesson, one of the major lessons of the days of unleavened bread. Remember, the Apostle Paul was persecuting true Christians and even got letters from the priests to go to Damascus and, and imprison uh, true Christians. The Apostle Paul tells here in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12, 1 Timothy 1 verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who enabled me, for that He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul, actually when he was Saul, before being converted to the Apostle Paul, was a persecutor. He goes on to say then in verse 15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation or acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. If, in other words, if the Apostle Paul, who was a chief of sinners, was forgiven, is it possible for you to be forgiven? Absolutely. We need to repent, of course, and ask God for repentance. He says in verse 16, Howbeit, for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on Him to life everlasting. So the Apostle Paul saying here, God had mercy on me, and if He had mercy on me, then He can have mercy on you. He was the chief of sinners. Yes, he repented of his human nature. And, of course, we can see uh, the uh, Acts of uh, Stephen and Acts, the seventh chapter, realizing that the wonderful ability to forgive your enemies is a gift from God, but it's also a requirement of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said that we are to pray for our enemies, do good to those that despitefully use us and persecute us. That is a divine love that human beings do not naturally have. Here in Acts, the seventh chapter, we see that act of love as Stephen is being martyred, as he's being stoned to death here. Uh, Acts, the seventh chapter, starting with verse 51. Uh, well, remember, here he's before the Sanhedrin, and he's giving a full history of Israel. He's being asked about his convictions. And can you, brethren... Speak as Stephen did about your beliefs and the understanding of the Scriptures and the history of God's church and work. And here he is giving the history of Israel. And something must have provoked him at that moment. Something must have sparked because there's an abrupt change in approach. Verse 51 of Acts 7. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. That was an accurate judgment of those men. And brethren, we need to again look at us. Do we resist the Holy Spirit? Are we uncircumcised in heart and mind? He went on to say, Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, 
And brethren, when we partake of that unleavened bread, remember Christ is the bread of life. And as you partake of your unleavened pancakes or your matzos or your specially unleavened cakes, just understand that this could represent Christ. He's the unleavened bread of life. John, the sixth chapter, says He is the bread of life who came down from heaven. And so remember that Christ must live His life in us. And He will if we are full of the Holy Spirit. Remember it says in Ephesians 5.18, I believe it is, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's God's will that you be filled with the Spirit. But He being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing in the right hand of God. Verse 56, Acts 7. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes as a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. Yes, we already saw in 1 Timothy 1 how Saul said, or Paul at that point, said he was the chief of sinners. And if God had mercy on him, because he caused people to die and stood by while Stephen was stoned to death. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Can you overcome human nature? Can you replace human nature with God's nature? Stephen was a remarkable example of that. While the stones came crushing against his head and his chest, and he was dying, he asked God not to lay that sin to their charge. Could you do that? That's what God is doing in us. That's what the days of unleavened bread picture, that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. We need to overcome human nature, Satan the devil, and the influence of the world. And God is creating in us that unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. How can we overcome? God has given us the tools for victory, the weapons for victory. He's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, but we must stir it up. Turn to Romans, the fifth chapter, Romans 5. God has given us so many precious promises. I hope that we claim those promises. Now open your Bible to Romans 5, 5. He says, And hope makes not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given to us. We all need the love of God. And that comes through the Holy Spirit. Remember Luke 11, verse 13, I believe it is, where he says, If you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Ask for God's Holy Spirit. Ask for God's love. And claim His promise that God's Spirit and love can flow out from you in rivers of living water, as Jesus promised in John 7, verses 37 and 38. So yes, you can overcome through the power of God's Holy Spirit. This is an old article I have uh, by How to Be an Overcomer by Herbert W. Armstrong. It's copyrighted 1951 by the Radio Church of God. I'll just read one paragraph or two paragraphs from the article. 
He says, we do not even have the kind of love that fulfills God's law and makes us righteous. Love is of God, for God is love. And it takes the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5, which we just read. It takes the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5, to fulfill the law, make us commandment keepers, and give us God's righteousness. Mr. Armstrong continues to write, The law is spiritual, Romans 7, 14. We are carnal. It takes a spiritual love to fulfill a spiritual law. The Holy Spirit within us is merely God's law in action. And since God alone can supply the love that makes us righteousness, it becomes God's righteousness, not ours. That's from Herbert W. Armstrong's article, How to Be an Overcomer. We can be an overcomer. We must be overcomers. And we can do it through the gift of God's Holy Spirit. And we must also do it with a spiritual armor. You're familiar with that in Ephesians, the sixth chapter. But, you know, when God gives us these tools, these weapons to fight the good fight of faith, and He says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Ephesians 6, verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand upon the wiles of the devil. He talks about, uh, again, the, the shield of faith that we need to have to take up that shield of faith. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But did you notice that we have to do something with that weaponry? Put on the whole armor of God. God gives us the weapons and the armor, but we have to put it on. Yes, we can overcome if we use the tools and the weapons and the gifts that God gives us. And God gives us the gift of the bread of life as well. I've already referred to John, the sixth chapter. He said, I am the bread of life which comes down from heaven. I am the bread of life. So we must eat of that bread of life and eat it daily. So we've seen that we must overcome our enemies, that we've been given these wonderful gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of uh, spiritual armor. He's given us the gift of the bread of life. And so now we must actively participate and grow and overcome. He's given us a command to grow and overcome. And it means sacrifice. It means dedication. Romans, the 12th chapter. Romans 12. Here, one of the basic principles for overcoming. It means sacrifice. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Uh, perhaps some have thought of being a dead sacrifice, of being a hero, and, and uh, he, he mentions that. That there are those who are good, who sometimes really give their lives to save someone else. And, uh, but God is saying here we need to also consider being a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or rational or intelligent service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So there, there must be effort on our part. We must not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to think. We need to eat of the living Word of God. As Jesus said in John 6.63, The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. 
Romans the eighth chapter, Romans the eighth chapter, and verse twenty-eight. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be of the firstborn among many brethren. Verse thirty. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? So God is for us. And we need to be conformed to His image. Verse 29. And God will help us do that. He's the great Creator. As we read in 1 Peter 4, verse 19. That those who suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of your souls, continuing to do good as unto a faithful Creator. So we must be transformed to the image of Christ. Brethren, do you have that in mind? That you want to change? That you want to be more like Jesus Christ? You want to be more filled with God's love and with the fruits of the Spirit? We need to eat of unleavened bread. Let's turn to John, the sixth chapter. John 6, I've referred to it several times. But during the days of unleavened bread, think as you eat unleavened bread, think that you're eating of Christ, the unleavened bread, and the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There are many lessons that we can learn through this. John, the sixth chapter, and verse 35, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. I know it was quite a long time ago, but uh, Mr. John O'Gwin wrote an article in the Living Church News, March, April, 1999. Feast on the bread of life. It was in the context of the days of unleavened bread. Uh, he also wrote an article in that same issue, that is, the Living Church News, March, April, 1999, titled, Deleavening the Corners of Your Mind. That was a very good title, Deleavening the Corners of Your Mind, because our thoughts can be leavened, and we need to have that unleavened thoughts and unleavened mind. What are the uh, challenges that we face in overcoming our human nature? As we've already seen, the elements of ego, of selfishness. Let's turn back to Ecclesiastes, the first chapter. Ecclesiastes 1. Knowledge puffs up, as we read here earlier. Are you puffed up in your mind? Or are you humble? The unleavened bread is flat bread. We need to clothe ourselves with humility, as the Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter, the fifth chapter. Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Here, the king is talking about vanity as something that is not lasting. It's not of lasting value. And so I ask you, when you work, when you talk, when you live, when you play, when you recreate... Is that vanity? What is not vanity is if you're recapturing true values, that what you do is fulfilling God's law of love, and it adds to your character, it adds to lasting value in your character, which will go on for all eternity 
if it's godly character. So avoid vanity. And he found that all was vanity, and certainly all that the world does, most of what the world does, is of little value or of, of just a striving after wind, as one of the translations have for the vanity of Ecclesiastes. And what is the solution to the problem? You know that. We used to sing that song. Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter, verse 13. Solomon writes, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole man. Or, as the New King James has it, this is man's all. Fearing God, having that reverence, and keeping His commandments is the whole man. So as we eat of the unleavened bread, as we learn to fear God, as we learn to humble ourselves and put away vanity and anything that's not lasting, we can grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Now, as you examine yourself before the feast, before the Passover, I hope you found and were able to see your human nature and aspects of your human nature. What changes do you need to make? What leaven of human nature must you overcome? Let's turn to Colossians, the third chapter, Colossians 3. Now, some of us have found that it's good to work on one quality at a time. Now, some people do this in the world of our physical goals. We are doing it for a spiritual purpose. Colossians, the third chapter. Again, uh, these are characteristics of human nature. Colossians 3, and uh, starting with uh, verse 5. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Now, how do you mortify, that is, put to death, your members that are on the earth? Well, you have to be aware of what is uh, active in a sinful way. To recognize it, to reject it, and to attack it. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. We have a society that says anything goes. And some of our people get caught up and say, well, if, if, if society is doing it, I guess I can do it. But do you realize, brethren, what they're going to face? They're going to face the wrath of God. And we will too, unless we repent of this kind of sinful attitude and sinful behavior. We need to humble ourselves and repent and to change. We need to overcome one of those obstacles at a time. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. We replace human nature with God's nature. We put the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth to replace the leaven of malice and wickedness. One suggestion I might give you here and, and exhort you and, and, uh, and exhort you here actually in 1 Corinthians the 13th chapter is to begin to apply the characteristics and the benefits and the qualities of love. Verse 4 in the King James Version, Charity suffers long and is kind. Now, has anyone ever told you you're kind? Are you patient? New King James Version, charity is, is, love is patient. Are you patient? 
I told one congregation at one time to be working on patience. And at the next following Sabbath, one of the members came back and said, this has been a very difficult week. I've been trying to overcome the, my impatience and trying to be more patience and patient, and it has been a real challenge this week. Well, we must work on these qualities one at a time, and God will give you the power to internalize these qualities and to make it a part of your lasting, godly, eternal character. We have to apply the seven laws of success to fix the right goal, to keep our eyes on the goal. And we need to take a look at Galatians 5. I already referred to the fruits of the Spirit, but let's take a look at them. Galatians 5. Yes, you can grow. You know, I've asked in sermons, I think some of you know, I've asked my wife, well, honey, have I grown in patience over the years? And, and uh, yes, I still have growing to, to do in patience in that particular quality. But here in Galatians, the fifth chapter, God again gives us the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, Galatians 5, is love. Have you grown in love? Do you have more love? Do you express more love in many different ways than you did last year? Joy. The book of Philippians has several references to joy and rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice, the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4 and verse 4. It's a fruit of the Spirit and peace. Jesus said, Peace I give unto you. My peace give I unto you. And remember, you can uh, choose to have a tranquil and a positive mind. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith or faithfulness, meekness, temperance or self-control. Against such there is no law. People are adamant against laws. They rebel against laws. And yet, God says there's no law against producing God's Holy Spirit, the fruits, that is, of God's Holy Spirit. There's no law against that. As we observe these days of unleavened bread, again, we need to think about eating the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And Christ also is a symbol of unleavened bread. So let's think about Christ in us. You know those Scriptures. Let's turn to Ephesians, the third chapter. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. Now notice this, verse 17. One of the major lessons of the days of unleavened bread that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend or understand with all saints what is the width and length and depth and height. It's a whole way of life that God is giving you. And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that is human knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. World without end. Amen. Well, brethren, God was giving us so many wonderful gifts, the gifts of the festivals, the holy days. Israel came out from Egypt, but they didn't get Israel 
Or they didn't get Egypt out of them, as you read in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4. We are on a journey to the promised land, the kingdom of God. We need to be going forth in faith. We need to follow the cloud by day and the pillar by night, symbolically. That is Jesus Christ. And we need to be sure that Christ is dwelling in our hearts, in our minds, in our character, in faith, by faith, that we might be rooted and grounded in love. Oh, Christ living in us is a part of the lessons of the days of unleavened bread. God has given us the gift of His holy days to understand and to practice His plan of salvation. God freed us from the penalty of sin through the blood of our Savior. Remember John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was in John the first chapter. And God gave the Israelites a great victory and will be rehearsing that on the seventh day of these days of unleavened bread when they came through the Red Sea and they gave the victory hymn, as it's called, in Exodus, the 15th chapter. They sang and they celebrated the victory that God gave them. We need to be transformed from human nature to divine nature. And that's the miracle of conversion. And we saw the example of Stephen who was stoned, being stoned to death, executed, and still prayed for forgiveness for his enemies. That is the ultimate, that is the core example of godly character. As Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Brethren, we need the nature of Christ. We need God's divine, holy, and righteous character. And the days of unleavened bread show our part in that. They teach us to rejoice in the victory we have over sin. The days of unleavened bread teach us that the living Christ has made us free from sin and that we can overcome death, that is, the penalty of death, because of Christ's life and because of His righteousness. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter in closing. We need to have the attitude of Caleb. When Caleb was confronted with those who complained about the giants, the Anakim, the walled cities in the promised land, Caleb said, we are well able to overcome it. Brethren, we need that positive attitude. And remember, when Moses stood by the Red Sea, and he said, why speak to you to me? Speak to the children of Israel that they go forward. Because God opened the Red Sea for them, and they found a way of escape. They found the way to victory, and God gives us the victory. He will open Red Seas for us. What problems we have, whether they're financial, whether they're with relationships, whether we're struggling against temptations, God can give us the power to overcome. During these days of unleavened bread, brethren, pray for God's Spirit. Read the Bible ingest of the Word of life, saturate your mind with the Word of God, and commit yourself to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, and it's through Him that we have the ultimate victory. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, and starting with verse 56, verse 55. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. God gives us the victory. Ask Him for victories in overcoming your nature, overcoming the devil, overcoming the influences of the world. And notice the last verse here in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Again, God will give us the victory. So during these days of unleavened bread, let's look forward to the promised land. Let's be keeping on, going on, persevering, doing the work, fulfilling the commission God has given us to preach the gospel to the world, to feed the flock, to warn the children of Israel about Jacob's trouble and the great tribulation. Let's grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And let's give thanks to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, during these days of unleavened bread, continue to read your Bible, continue to love one another, and enjoy the remainder of this wonderful festival that teaches God's way of life and our part in His plan of salvation.